Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing the settlement of the UK's Brexit bill and Jeremy Corbyn's full frontal attack on bankers. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, Chief Economics Commentator Martin Wolfe, and Political Commentator Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. So the big Brexit news this week was about the bill. After a lot of months of toing and froing and haggling between the UK and EU negotiators, the British side essentially accepted what was clear last summer, that it was going to have to pay to get an exit deal. Assuming liabilities of some 100 billion euros, the final net sum is going to be in the region of 45 to 55 billion euros. It's quite a bitter pill for US sceptics to swallow, but do they really have any choice? Alex Barker, let's begin on this topic of the bill because when negotiations formally opened back in June, Michelle Barnier made it quite clear that unless the UK was willing to meet its past and future liabilities assumed under membership, then no kind of divorce deal was going to be on the table. And since then, we've had backwards and forwards with the Florence speech and rumours from the UK government, but essentially we've accepted what was clear six months ago. Yeah, I mean, more than six months ago, I mean, I think the end, the end of last year, about a year ago, they kind of set out what they were expecting. The member states then even bid up the commission to say, no, it's not just, you know, liabilities that Britain signed on to as a member. It's going to be the full long-term budget that it signed off right up to 2020. Everything in there, we want them to cover. And what we've seen uh, in the last week or so was the UK say, OK, so keen to get onto trade now. We're going to cover cover all of that. We'll expect a transition to be part of it as well, but we're going to cover the whole thing. And now they're really just talking about uh, the presentation of what that means in net terms over payments that will stretch for decades, potentially. So in the favoured cliche that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, this leeway of about 45 to 50, 40 to 45 billion, sorry, which essentially that probably won't actually be settled, you'd imagine, until the final deal is thrashed out, which will be sometime um, later next year. I don't think that's the way the EU see it. Nothing is agreed till everything is agreed. The UK is always has the option of walking away right at the end with no deal at all and not paying anything and basically destroying its political relationship with its main trading partner and neighbour. That's always an option that's available. But what won't be done is the reopening of this financial settlement is not going to happen in that second phase. It won't be a case of, look, we'll bid up 10 billion to get a bit more access on airlines. The EU are absolutely adamant about that. I would be very doubtful about that happening, it's certainly in terms of the past debts. can talk about future payments on top of whatever settled. I mean, the discrepancy between 45 and 55 or 60 is really about difference in estimates, how much the pension liability is actually going to be when you're paying the pensions rather than what we expected 
needed to be in 2040 or 2050 and projected out to be now. That's really where that difference lies. But the UK is saying, ultimately, you're not going to be out of pocket. And that's the thing that has unlocked these talks. So back home, George Parker, it seems to have gone down relatively okay, considering there was not any mention of paying this kind of huge sum during the EU referendum. And of course, some of it would have been paid anyway, Mm. if we were going to say in the EU. So it's not quite fair to say this is wasted money, as some people have tried to spin it. But on the other hand, it reminds me of something Pascal Lamy said when he said that Brexit is not really a negotiation. It's a process of managing a problem. And it does seem to be that because on every single issue, the UK has begun with a very hard, tough stance. We're not paying anything. We're not going to accept ECJ. And then it basically capitulates to whatever the EU says. That's right. And uh, Nick McPherson, the former head of the UK Treasury, tweeted this week after the financial offer was revealed by Alex that this wasn't so much a negotiation as a drive-by shooting, channeling something that Fred Goodwin said at RBS during the bailout. And it's true. I mean, every every step along the way, a pattern has emerged that the government talks tough, hits an EU-imposed deadline, and at the last moment it backs down. And what's fascinating about it, and you alluded to this in your question, is the way that the Tory Eurosceptics have basically gone along with this. And there are a number of reasons, I think, why that is. I think the most important one is that most of the mainstream Eurosceptics recognise they have won the big prize. Britain is leaving the European Union. They the want clean break. The clean break. They want this to be a success. They know that if Theresa May doesn't get some sort of progress at the December European Council, her position will be jeopardised and they're worried about her being toppled and Brexit falling apart. And thirdly, they are worried, above all else, that... Uh, if Theresa May falls and the government falls apart, we could have an end up with a Labour government. So there are a number of factors at play here, but you're right. The mood on the Tory benches is strangely calm at the moment, given the number of concessions that have been made. From my understanding, the two key figures in keeping that mood calm is Michael Gove, the Environment Secretary, who made some comments in an interview on the Andrew Marr show where he said, we don't want anyone in the EU to be left out of pocket, which is quite mm. far from his comments where he once called for the whole EU to be disbanded in a democratic <laughs> liberalisation of the <laughs> continent. And also Steve Baker, who is a minister in the Brexit department and is still very much marshalling the backbench troops through the European Research Group. And both of them have accepted that key argument you said, George, which is that, you know, two years, we get through that, then we have the clean break. And I think where things would begin to get very difficult for Mrs May is if they don't have that final cut off what you might call the real Brexit day. Yeah, I think you're right. They're, they're incredibly disciplined. They coordinate their responses to every government announcement on WhatsApp groups. And it was no that barring a few mavericks like Peter Bone, for example, who did criticise the, the final settlement, generally there was a rigid discipline. They didn't speak out. You're right, Michael Gove's played a role, Steve Baker certainly. Inside number 10, Gavin Barwell, Theresa May's tireless chief of staff has been holding things together. Robbie Gibber, head of communication, who's a lever as well. They've all been important players in this. But no, it's been remarkable they managed to hold it together. There's one of the facts which I didn't mention earlier, but one of the reasons why I think they're calm is that after Christmas, we'll move on to the big question, the big unresolved question about the final trade deal between the future relationship between Britain and the rest of the EU. And on that one, strangely enough, the interests of Brussels and the interests of the Tory hardline Eurosceptics are broadly aligned, which is Brussels will offer us a trade deal along the lines of the one that the EU has done with Canada. And that is exactly the kind of trade deal envisaged by the Eurosceptics because it leaves Britain sort of at a distance from the EU, not trying to echo EU regulations and able to do its own deals in the world. We'll come back to that in a moment. But just before we get to that, Alex, we have obviously December's crucial summit on the 14th, 15th. And this is the point at which sufficient progress will be judged. Has there been enough progress made on these three key issues to 
to begin opening talks on a future relationship. So on the money, we're there. On Eve Citizen's right, from what it sounds like, we're pretty close. But then, of course, we come back to Ireland and we still haven't really got much of a consensus. Nothing has changed over the past week and it really does look like it's going to be a problematic issue. What's your gut feeling on what's going to happen in December? Well, I, I think this is probably going to be solved by my Monday, if it's going to be solved at all. As you said, money is pretty much there. Citizen rights is a few ECJ questions, but manageable. The issue of Ireland, the stakes, the political stakes have really been ramped up over the last couple of weeks. And I think they're probably working on something that will resolve this at the moment. There's been a bit of movement. And ultimately, for the Irish to stand in the way of something now would be a, a huge, huge step for them, not least because I think not just in Dublin, but in other capitals, there's a judgment that says, you know, Theresa May probably has one more move to make. And although they see the UK very much as the, the weaker party in this, and, you know, the side has had to compromise most, they probably sense where the limits of pushing it are. And although they could happily wait until March, frankly, for a divorce deal and a transition deal, I think it will be quite something if they decide to hold firm now and deny a sufficient progress deal. So there are ways around it that are possible. They can draft their way out of the Irish issue to some degree because they're not trying to find a solution. So I expect something will be done. And if necessary, if enough isn't agreed with the UK, I think you'll see a pretty firm statement on Irish issues by the 27 about what their kind of red lines are for that second phase negotiation when it comes to Ireland. And I think it's a pretty ropey moment um, for the May government, George, because people I've spoken to in, in the Department of Exiting the Eve feel that there'll be a big loss of confidence in the whole process if we don't get the nod in December because they feel that they basically trusted Michelle Barnier and have done what has been asked to do to move forward on this suddenly the Irish issues emerged and depending on how that plays out over the next couple of days but you know the idea of a British walkout doesn't seem beyond expectations if the nod isn't given and if that happens then we obviously veer possibly towards no deal Brexit territory which would be a very risky thing for the May government given these crucial votes um, mm -hmm. on the withdrawal legislation that comes soon after the summit in the House of Commons and you could see the whole thing coming to a head very quickly and actually turning into a, a confidence vote on the government. <laughs> yes there are quite a few um, hypotheticals piled on top of each other but, <laughs> but I think I'd start by agreeing with Alex's uh, starting point which is I think there will be an agreement at the Council on December the 14th and 15th. I think the momentum is there on both sides and I think the Irish issue can be fixed through drafting because as Alex pointed out we're not trying to solve the Irish border question at the moment we're trying to find a, a drafting form that reassures Ireland that it will be addressed. But you're right the British government is haunted by what happened at the last European Council in October where Theresa May made the big Florence speech they considered that to be quite a conciliatory speech with lots of concessions. Michel Barnier said it would be enough to unlock the talks and then France and Germany amongst other countries said no we're going to have to wait until December. So they need to make sure, and this is why Theresa May is in uh, Brussels on Monday, that the next step is done together. Synchronised jumping takes place and that's what this, what the, the end state of these negotiations before the December Council is all about. If there isn't progress in the middle of December, which I think there will be, then you're right. I think it's quite likely the British government might be tempted or be under a lot of pressure actually to say the process isn't working and to walk out. And that would be a very dangerous moment for Theresa May's government but I don't think we're going to come to that. And it's also the role of the DUP in this as well who have taken a very hard line on the Irish issue and have sent some not-so-coded warnings to Downing Street saying that if you compromise too much, then we'll pull out of the supply and confidence deal, which is 
propping up her government in Westminster. So going into that coalition was, you know, some say it was the only choice they had. But it's certainly been a straitjacket on what she can do around um, about, you know, softening that issue. There has. And they, the, the DUP have said that if there's any agreement which puts Ireland in a different situation to the rest of the UK, they will walk out of that deal with the Tories and potentially bring Theresa May's government down. However, look, I don't think, I think you can overstate this slightly because the fact is I think any British government, Labour or Conservative, in a strong would position, feel position would feel the same. The idea that Northern Ireland would be split in some way through a customs arrangement or whatever else from the mainland is totally unacceptable, not just in Northern Ireland, but frankly to any government in London. You can't have a border through the Irish Sea. It's just so totally un- unacceptable and unsellable to the British public population and indeed the, the uh, unionist community in Northern Ireland. So let's flip on to a slightly more positive view of things, Alex. So we get through December and we get the Nord given and we then enter this crucial conversation early next year. And this, as George said, is where the real battle lies because there's a lot of people, including Theresa May, who talk about a bespoke British deal, a bespoke British option in these talks. But the fact is, it's either going to be Norway or Canada and Norway is just not politically acceptable in the UK. So you're really going to start with a very basic trade deal. You know, how painful do you see that process being and the process for agreeing the standstill transition? It's going to be very, very difficult because there's no kind of template for doing this at the moment in terms of dealing with a country that's not converging with the EU as a trade area, but diverging. And so they're all kind of feeling around in the dark a bit at the moment. And what we'll see over the coming year is the the UK pressing for a lot of creativity, hybrid models, something unique and special, and the EU prioritizing unity again, and particularly in that run-up to Brexit Day, showing that, you know, you can't leave and have a free lunch and, and everything else. And the instinct will be conservative, very conservative about the kind of offer they'd be making to the UK at that point. And so there's got to be a reconciliation of some sort in that what they call a future framework agreement in the end, whether it's one page, 20 or a thousand, it's going to have to deal with this issue of rule taking. And so we're reaching quite an important kind of fork for the UK in terms of how it decides on a question that's haunted British politics for decades, you know, how close, how closely aligned does Britain want to be with the European economy? And finally, George, one quick point to go back to the money I meant to mention to you earlier, which is the presentation of this, that there's been very little groundwork laid by Downing to say about paying money. You know, Theresa May said in her Florence speech, you know, Britain was a company that would pay to dues and that kind of thing. But this idea, you know, there's ways of spinning this, talking about, you know, securing a deep and special partnership, meeting its commitment, helping our allies. But there's been absolutely nothing from the Prime Minister on this issue. And do you think that's going to come back and bite her or have people just kind of accepted it? It seems to me that people generally have accepted it. But you're right, there's been no attempt to sell this. I mean, as Alex was writing, this bill will be spread over many years. And frankly, and you get this from some Eurosceptics, it's money behind the back of the sofa, really, in terms of the overall British economic interest in securing a deal. But you're right, there hasn't been much of an effort to sell it. And I think it's one of the strange things. I think most people at the start of this process would have assumed that the money thing would be the biggest issue, the one thing that would blow up. Lots of diplomats thought Theresa May could never get this past her own party. But she's done it without much of an effort, which is uh, rather intriguing. Jeremy Corbyn was back in the headlines for this week for his attack on Morgan Stanley. The American bank had said that a Labour government under his leadership was more dangerous than a hard Brexit to the UK economy. In return, Mr Corbyn lashed out at the speculators and gamblers who crashed our economy and really didn't 
create much good blood with a key part of the UK's economy. Martin Wolf, let's begin where this all started, which is obviously Jeremy Corbyn probably doesn't have a lot of experience of the City of London with the financial sector, so it's not really much surprise that he chose this easy opportunity to attack the big banks who still aren't really that liked by many British voters. Yes, I think there's more to it than that. It's obvious that he dislikes this symbol of capitalism. I mean, he is a proper socialist. We should understand with uh, well outside any of the social democratic consensus we're familiar with. And he's right that I think the very large portion of the population remain deeply suspicious of the banks. And that's not just Labour supporters. It includes quite a lot of people on the right. Business people, small business people, they complain. And the city is seen as remote greedy, full of a nest of speculators and associated with this disastrous financial crisis. So it fits in with his ideology. It is popular. And this being so, I expect him to continue this battle. They're, they're an absolutely obvious target. And finally, you know, conservatives don't really want to defend the city because they don't think it's very popular either. In terms of a political strategy, Miranda Green, it does make quite a lot of sense that at the beginning of this year, Mr Corbyn had this Trumpite relaunch, or well, that's how it was briefed, that he was going to learn from the Trump playbook, which is really just about getting headlines. It doesn't matter if they're negative or right or wrong, and it's about setting yourself against the few, the elite, the, the establishment. And that very much went has gone all the way through this year, including the general election campaign, where Mr Corbyn did so much better than expected. So in that sense, it does seem to be a central political strategy. Yes, and I don't think there's any sense in which his team or the bulk of the Labour Party, in fact, not just the Corbyn wing of it, would think these were negative headlines from his intervention yesterday. And I think one of the reasons they've gone for it with this very full-throated response on Morgan Stanley is because there is a lot of chatter about why isn't Labour doing better in the polls. When you've got a, a governing Conservative Party in such a mess, total literally, disarray. total disarray, terrible troubles over the, the number one issue of the day Brexit, ministerial resignations from the cabinet almost weekly. You really, as the opposition party, should be cleaning up in terms of public opinion. But there's still a huge chunk, the detailed polling shows, of people that even though they don't think the government's doing a good job, they are not willing to look at the Corbyn alternative. So it's in their interest to try and garner a few headlines. And as you've said, if the object of their left-wing ire is actually a hate figure that many people also see as suspicious in terms of its role in the, in the wider economy, then it's it's all to the good. But Martin Wolf, we sit here as employees of the Financial Times, we generally quite like finance and think that this is a bad idea, that attacking obviously the city is a huge revenue generator for the UK, it secures London as one of the financial capitals of the world and this kind of straightforward populism is not going to help London at such a crucial time when its future is up for grabs given all the Brexit uncertainties. I suppose there's a political question, which is following up from what Miranda said, which is that our, and I'll come to that in a second, Project Fear, will this Project Fear about what Corbyn will mean, and that's what Morgan Stanley was saying, uh, will it work politically or not? In other words, will the body politic, that very people Miranda's talking about, be frightened by Corbyn's radicalism and say, well, this is all very well, I don't like banks very much, but I really don't want to live in Venezuela. And that's clearly what the Conservatives will and must argue. On the substance, I think there are probably two distinct points. First, 
Britain is an economy deeply embedded in the world economy. We are very dependent on foreign direct investment in a whole slew of fields, which mean foreign decision making, and the city is itself an important example of that. There are hundreds of foreign banks here, and London is one of the two world's two most important financial centers. It's not just that he's attacking the city, which is itself a very important revenue and a, and a very, very important part of our economy. He's, of course, indirectly t- going to frighten, I think, without any doubt, a very large number of companies that come in the belief that we're an open, pro-business, pro-market, internationally entwined e- economy. So that's very dangerous. On the banks themselves, there is, I think, still a reasonable debate to be had about the future of British banking. I think the banking sector we ended up with after the crisis, and indeed brought us into the crisis, still has some pretty big problems. And the most important, I think, are that it is too concentrated and it doesn't serve the real economy very well. If he focused on those things with targeted intelligent thoughts about how to remedy those things, I actually think it would be quite a good thing. But of course, that would be much too subtle. It wouldn't be very populist and it probably wouldn't get him where he wants. But the complaint that banking isn't working as well as we would like, that's not an unreasonable complaint. And many people outside the Labour left circle would agree with it. Martin, of course, is quite right that the broader message from the Corbynite belief system is to do with not actually wanting a particularly open economy, because what we might describe as open to the Corbyn wing of the Labour Party is this cursed thing neoliberal. Neoliberal is, of course, a phrase which five years ago was only used on the fringes of British politics and is now the kind of insult du jour. So, in fact, this whole worldview that Martin's describing us so worrying, so scary to business, is, of course, the genuinely held belief system of Corbyn and those around him. When you're talking about a Labour Party that wants to win a general election, should one come sooner rather than later, that's not enough, of course, because they've got to win over the doubters. And it's very interesting to see Corbyn making this initiative this week, when, of course, John McDonnell, his shadow chancellor, has actually been extremely careful, even during the Labour Party conference where he was talking to the party faithful, to sound as reasonable and as social democratic as he possibly could in the circumstances. So those are kind of competing rhetorical threads there. that They haven't resolved that. And it does sort of fly in the face of all this work Mr McDonnell has been doing to appeal to the City of London. And he was saying during party conference he's been hitting up the chai tea circuit where he's been going around financiers, hedge funds and what have you to explain to them why a Labour government won't be so radical. It's not going to completely overturn our economic mud, just a bit more spending here. It's actually much more Scandinavian. That's the line they love to put out there. But then you see this kind of rhetoric and it does seem entirely in the face of that, Martin. Well, his problem, I suspect, is I don't know what they would do in power. I suspect they don't know what they will do about Put that aside. But they have two groups, very different groups of people they want to satisfy. They have brought into the Labour Party a whole huge number of enthusiastic, many young people who want the radical message. They want the rejection of what Miranda calls neoliberalism, the, the word they use. At the same time, to win a general election... 
He has to get out of that ghetto because clearly he's going to have to win somewhere in the 45, 46 percent of the electorate, given how close it was last time. And these are people who would be very disturbed, I think, but maybe I'm wrong, about the rhetoric that might, when we've got Brexit anyway, chase more businesses out of the country, lose more revenue from the city. It's a very big revenue earner, make it more difficult to fund the NHS and all the other essential things. Now, we've had a whole bunch of, let's put it gently, fibs on, from, on that subject from the Tory right, the Brexiters, and now maybe we have a whole new set of fibs. And so how Labour will manage to address these two fundamentally different audiences, I don't know. But they, they've got one thing on their side, which is that really f the Conservatives cannot now get up and say, we are at least the competent party. You can rely on us to look after things well. That's sort of gone. And so so Corbyn has a chance. This is the extraordinary thing, Miranda, because the Conservatives have always been the party of business, of enterprise and, and of the City of London. But we really don't hear anything from them about that. And the city minister, a chap called Stephen Barclay, I don't think either of you will be able to tell me a single thing about him or see him in an interview or tell me what his views on the City of London are. And I think at this crucial time, particularly with Brexit, there's this sense from the Conservatives that the city is a bit of a headache because it flies in the face of this populist unrest that has been unlocked by our departure from the EU. And as Martin said, the economic uncertainty ahead will be blamed on the Tories if we end up um, getting pulled into a recession. Absolutely. And that is the factor which could in the end, post-Brexit, restructure British politics, I think. The fact that the Conservative Party has kind of resiled from its role as the party of business. And there is a huge opportunity there for the opposition, who, as we've said, are, on the other hand, pulled in different directions. I think, I think we should also just notice that this Corbyn tirade against investment bankers does also come at quite a convenient time for them in another sense, which is that it distracts from Labour's mess over Brexit itself. It's got a very uneasy compromise on the main issue of the day. And so erecting this this hate figure of the city, whether it's a straw man or not in this case, is very convenient for them. Also, the only other headlines about the Labour Party in recent days have been about this momentumite purge of councillors and of lower ranking elected representatives of the Labour Party, which it's thought is actually the much cleverer way of dominating the party in the future than going for the MPs first. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes in terms of the Corbynite power grab of the party and to have a headline that's him attacking figures who most of the country are suspicious of anyway in terms of their role is pretty convenient this week. And it's actually quite a good attack because if you Jeremy Corbyn's on the cover of GQ magazine which has unravelled as well and um, the, the editor of GQ Dylan Jones has described Mr Corbyn as being pushed around by his A's like a grandpa which is a very unfortunate headline for them to get out of this interview but this one actually seems to be very well done and not least because of how it was put across on social media that they had a very wealth and they'd gone through all the donors to the Conservative Party said all these people are actually Tories that are trying to st score political points and here's our nice little friendly Mr Corbyn sticking up for the ordinary man and of course it's working class voters who they really do need to be on side if they're going to win a majority come the next election. Yes and I think the thing is we've got to accept that as the three of us sit here in this room and talk about the real role of the City of London and the real nature of the British economy as an open globalised thing, making those arguments 
has become so hard and the Brexit referendum demonstrated this. I mean, we could try, for example, to go out and explain why the tax take from all these bankers is so valuable to the rest of us, why it pays for the NHS and schools, etc. But that argument is going to come up with the same problems that the Remain argument came up against in the Brexit referendum. And you have got a public mood which is resolutely sort of anti-elite. And so any of these rhetorical flourishes which hit, you know, so-called fat cat pay, etc. They're just going to go over at the moment. And it may be that those people who are scared by the broader Corbynite worldview that it exposes are actually outweighed by the people who feel sympathetic to that message. Well, it's where I started. The project fear might not work. And it might well mean that Corbyn, Mr. Corbyn will be elected. But I'd underlined what Seb said, which is both of our main parties on the Brexit issue are deeply internally divided. And neither, in fact, if you look at it carefully, has a coherent policy on the economy. Uh, The rest of the world has noticed this, and they have concluded that Britain is in pretty serious disarray. And that's what Morgan Stanley was saying. And just very finally, briefly, Martin, do you think Morgan Stanley were actually right in saying Mr Corbyn is a bigger threat than a hard Brexit? It is perfectly possible to imagine that a seriously incompetent and extreme Labour government, I'm not saying that will happen, can do simply stupendous damage. We've seen this in, we haven't seen this in Europe since the war, but we've seen it in countries in Latin America, for example, Argentina, Venezuela, that sort of Peru at one point, that sort of completely irresponsible populist left-wing economics is fantastically destroyed. It doesn't work. I've written a column about it. It's consistent. Now, The Swedish model works beautifully, but the Swedish model is seriously disciplined. It's an open econ, it always has been, and they understand how to get these priorities right. I think the Corbyn lot haven't decided whether they're essentially anti-American, Latin American type populists or serious social democrats. And that's why this government would worry me. But on the other hand, I have to say I'm fantastically unimpressed by the Conservatives. So at the moment, I regard myself as aggressively independent. Well, on that high note, that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much to George, Alex, Martin and Miranda for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. FT Politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Madison Derbyshire. Till next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.